and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the decision by the High Court of London to allow the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States, where he faces 17 charges under the Espionage Act. Joining us is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who has faced similar charges from the Department of Justice, James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. In 2006, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA and is currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Maria Reyes' legal defense in the Philippines. We'll discuss his latest article at The Intercept, If This Can Happen to Maria, Then This Can Happen to You, and the need to separate the Julian Assange who published the Iraq and Afghanistan war leaks from Chelsea Manning from the Julian Assange who worked with Russian intelligence to hurt Hillary Clinton's election chances and help Donald Trump. Then, with inflation propelled by rising oil and gas prices dogging President Biden and threatening him with the fate that befell Jimmy Carter, we'll speak with Naomi Oreskes, a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She served as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the United States Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. And her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, Why Trust Science, and Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean. She joins us to discuss her article at Common Dreams, Big Oil's Secret Strategy to Keep Winning, and how, as global warming demands, we must stop consuming oil and gas immediately. Big oil has moved from climate denial to climate delay. Then finally, with the frontrunner in next week's election for President of Chile revealed as the son of a Nazi who, at the end of World War II, escaped to Chile via the Vatican's rat line. We will speak with an expert on Chile, Jennifer Pribble, a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond. She's the author of Welfare and Party Politics in Latin America and is currently researching the implementation of social welfare policies in Peru and Chile. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now, James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept 
and a former investigative journalist with the New York Times and the author of the New York Times bestseller, State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. In 2006, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA. And in 2007, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he's currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Maria Reyes's Legal Defense in the Philippines. And his latest article at The Intercept is, If This Can Happen to Maria, Then This Can Happen to You. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Risen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I, I'd like to talk to you about Maria Reza and her battles with the political, the, the thug in charge of the Philippines, Duterte, uh, who, by the way, was just at a recent conference at the White House, the Summit for Democracy. But let's talk a little bit about what's happened with the, the British courts in, in the case of Julian Assange. The High Court of London ruled that Julian Assange can be extradited to the United States to face charges uh, which could have him end up serving long prison sentences in Australia. And they were reversing a lower court decision based upon, not upon the substance of the charges, but rather that he should not be extradited to the United States because of conditions in American prisons. So you yourself have personally been at the wrong end of the United States government's power, right? They went after you over the warrantless wiretaps stories and the leaks that you were dealing with as a journalist. So I guess you're the right person to talk to about what it's like to have the most powerful country in the world have you in their crosshairs. Yeah, one of the things about uh, that I learned about the Justice Department is that it's um, it, it has unlimited resources and that it can uh, continue cases long after they should be over because uh, there's no one there to stop them. There's no one there uh, who can say, we don't have the money to keep doing this. Um, And so legal cases, especially in this area of press freedom, um, you know, they can ground down just about anybody. Um, And um, that's one of the things that you see constantly is that in these leak investigations, uh, for the most part, uh, whistleblowers who were prosecuted uh, plead guilty, and uh, usually because of the legal the costs of defending them. You know, getting uh, good lawyers to defend them, they can bankrupt you very quickly, and the government counts on that in most cases. Uh, and um, so they've continued to come after Assange for years now. And he's been held in prison in Britain. And, um, you know, I think that the I think he and his lawyers will appeal this decision. And so I don't think he'll be extradited anytime soon. But um, it's a really bad precedent for uh, press freedom in the United States, because the indictment on which he's been charged uh, is largely based on the idea that uh, on on his interactions with a source, um, Chelsea Manning, you know, one thing to everyone should realize is this has nothing to do with his involvement in twenty six in the twenty sixteen presidential election with uh, uh, Russia or the Trump campaign. This is about his earlier work uh, to uh, primarily with U.S. news organizations 
to publish uh, documents leaked uh, by Chelsea Manning to uh, WikiLeaks about the um, U.S. military's operations in um, Afghanistan and about um, U.S. Uh, State Department cables um, that were uh, leaked. And so it's, uh, you know, one of the problems that Assange has is that he's become very unpopular because of his role with Trump and the uh, 2016 campaign and, and um, you know, questions about whether he was an intermediary for the Russian, for Russian intelligence. But that shouldn't cloud the fact that this case is not related to that and that it does raise real problems for other journalists who, um, because it potentially criminalizes uh, a reporter's interactions with sources who are providing information that is classified and which could be, then could, um, it could prosecute a journalist for aiding and abetting the uh, unauthorized release of classified information, which is a dangerous uh, precedent. And in terms of what you were saying earlier, James Rice, about comparisons to your situation when you were under pressure from the Justice Department during the Obama administration, and in this case, it's the Biden administration who inherited the case from the Trump administration. So right. uh, it clearly indicates what you were saying, that uh, they have the resources and it's a sort of... Yeah, a- I mean, this, this, this began, I mean, the investigation into um, uh, Assange and WikiLeaks began in the Obama administration. They had all but decided to indict him and then held back. Uh, and then Trump... The Trump administration went through with the indictment where the Obama people had decided on this issue that it was a bad precedent for uh, for the press. They had held back on actually issuing the indictment. The um, Trump administration didn't care about that, and so they went through with the indictment. Then um, the Biden administration inherited the case, which was already you know, being uh, the indictment was had already been made public. And the issue for them was, should we, you know, the British courts had ruled early, like in January, that we are not going to send him to the United States um, for in an extradition to face this, these charges. And um, so that was the, the only decision that the Biden administration had to make was, should we appeal the rejection in the British courts of extradition to the United States? Uh, That was a narrow decision for them, but it was also an important one because they they could easily have just dropped the case at that point. Um, And and the fact that they decided not to drop it, I think, is very telling about how the Biden administration does not prioritize uh, press freedom. And again, I'm speaking with James Risen, the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestsellers State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. In 2006, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA. And in 2007, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he's currently the director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, 
Maria Reyes' legal defence in the Philippines. And his latest article, The Intercept, is if this can happen to Maria, then this can happen to you. So Julian Assange is facing 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act, as you mentioned, it, it relates to the leaks from Chelsea Manning. The most prominent of, of all, of course, was the attack helicopter footage in Iraq uh, where uh, journalists and innocent Iraqis were mowed down by, a, what is it, 30-millimeter cannon aboard this attack helicopter. And you heard the um, the pilots and the gunners enjoying what they were doing. And that was picked up just about everybody around the world, right? So this is a case where if you embarrass the government, they don't like it, right? Right. Yeah, and, and a lot of the, um, you know, there were like several rounds of leaks that WikiLeaks got. Um, and, you know, the um, State Department cables also, uh, which were, have become a real, uh, the, the leak of the State Department cables, thousands of them, um, became a real uh, reference tool for historians and for journalists around the world. Um, and I know for a fact when I have written stories based on those cables that people, many people at the State Department were actually happy that they had been made public because, you know, if, if you know anybody from the State Department, you know they're very frustrated that nobody ever listens to them. And that their cables basically go, you know, vanish into thin air because everyone in Washington largely ignores them. And the fact that they were well written and showed um, a real knowledge, for the most part, of local conditions in different countries uh, really actually helped uh, raise the um, status of uh, State Department analysts. at least among journalists, because we always uh, tended to think that they didn't really know what they were doing or know what they were talking about. So it's one of the the ironies of this whole process of leaks uh, is how beneficial many people in the government find them, yet they continue to prosecute people for releasing information that in the end is is good for uh, history. And uh, it's it's an arbitrary, randomized process of what is prosecuted and what is not prosecuted, uh, and it's um, it's really one of the saddest elements of American ju- uh, the American justice system. And of course, the American justice system, in effect, was on trial in these British cases with Assange because the reason that lower, the lower courts ruled against extradition were because of conditions in American prisons, and they felt that Assange is in a delicate psychological state and he could not survive right. an American prison. Right. American prisons are, first of all, we have by far the world's num- greatest number of prisoners in our prisons, along with the right. fact that they're absolutely violent and horrendous places. Right. He, right. The agreement, right. of course, was that he would serve out his sentence in Australia. But what do you think, and I know this has nothing to do with what WikiLeaks and Assange did during the 2016 elections, where he clearly was working with the Russians and uh, when Trump was in trouble just before the election, particularly over the uh, Access Hollywood tape, immediately when that tape was causing massive problems for Trump and even people like Mike Pence were repudiating him, WikiLeaks dumped all of this data from the hack from Hillary Clinton and the the DNC. 
So right. the coincidence is uh, such that, <clears throat> in fact, CNN did a very in-depth uh, investigation, and part of their sources were the Spanish security company that did security for the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where Assange had been holed up there for a number of years. And it was pretty clear that the Russian intelligence officials from the, the Russian embassy in London were handing off stuff to him. I mean, the details mm -hmm. of what they have on his relationship with the Russians are pretty unassailable and, and pretty extraordinary in their depths of how much he was essentially working for Russian intelligence. So right. do, do, does anybody know when WikiLeaks and Assange changed from being the group that provided us with the information via Chelsea Manning that put him on the map, and I think he was being independently financed, I think, just by all kinds of people around the world. But then at some point or other, I think the Russians moved in. Does anybody know exactly when that happened, when he ceased to be a real independent publisher and then became an, essentially a whore for the Russians? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I've thought about that myself. I don't know enough about uh, the details um, of that to know. Um, one of the best things I've ever seen or um, about Assange was Laura Poitras's movie um, about him called Risk, a documentary. That has a lot of really good insights into uh, Assange and his personality. He's clearly a... Uh, uh, I guess I shouldn't <laughs> say exactly what I, my views on him, but it's, um, it's almost as if, uh, he planned, he set up WikiLeaks, uh, and had one great success, which was, uh, Chelsea Manning. Um, but that's not a business model for journalism to have one source who gives you a lot of stuff once. And so he kind of parceled it out over time. And I think that when, you know, when he got stuck in the Ecuadorian embassy and went there for sanctuary, I'm sure that the process of being inside that embassy for so long um, changed him, at least embittered him and may have harmed his mental health. Um, but I don't know all the details. I think uh, there's lots of other people who know better than I do. But I think the the problem is, as I said earlier, I think the what he has done recently uh, with the Russians and with Trump has made it very difficult for very many people to support his uh, defense against this indictment. And that's too bad because it's actually it. it I frankly don't. Uh, I mean, I think that the significance of this case is what it could mean for other journalists, not for Assange. And um, the Biden administration has tried to argue, and the Trump administration did too, tried to argue that Assange is not a journalist. And, but in this case, in the in the details of this uh, criminal indictment, they are making it clear that the charges relate to his interactions with someone who was a source of information for the news media. And that could, if they are successful in prosecuting that, that could form the basis for future court cases 
against more mainstream journalists who have interactions with sources who provide them with classified information. And it would mean that the Pentagon Papers would never have been published. It would mean that you would never have won the Pulitzer Prize for your stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA. It would mean that the United States would have the system that they have in the UK of the D-notices, where the intelligence services can just intervene with prior restraint before anybody publishes anything that they don't like. Yeah, it would essentially be a de facto official secrets act, because if you can criminalize the interactions between a source who has classified information and a journalist, then you can very easily manipulate as a prosecutor what are the lines that a journalist is not allowed to cross in their interactions with that source. One of the things that I think they are charging him with is, well, he he coached Manning on how to uh, get into different, you know, databases. Um, well, you could, you know, if you if you're going to prosecute somebody for that, you could you could change the parameters. Say, what if you just said all you did was encourage someone to get classified information for you? Are you going to prosecute a journalist for that? And so, it's a very dangerous, a very dangerous case for press freedom. And just in the last minute here, I know you're working on a, the story about the New York Times being enjoined and prevented from publishing a story about this dreadful guy, O'Keefe, who runs Project Veritas, who poses as a journalist, but he's actually a right-wing propagandist, and rather right. than get, in, get information out to the public, which is the role of the journalist, he gets information through surreptitious means and distorts that information for propaganda purposes. And yet, somehow or other, he's, he's able, through the courts, to hold up the New York Times? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very, another dangerous case where a state court, I think it's a state court in New York, has enjoined the New York Times from publishing a story based on documents they obtained um, about this Project Veritas effort to... Uh, Get uh, purloin the uh, diary of I think Biden's daughter, um, and um, it's a I don't know all the details of the case yet because it hasn't been published uh, and the, the Times hasn't published their story. But its prior restraint of the press is incredibly dangerous, and it one I thought that it had been ended by the uh, Pentagon Papers Supreme Court ruling which had um, uh, ruled against the Nixon administration when they uh, issued an injunction to stop the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers. Um, and so I don't, I, I, it's very, especially in a case like this, it doesn't involve national security at all. It's about a private um, op, rogue operation by Project Veritas. It doesn't involve the government. Um, it's a very strange and troubling case. That, and just in, uh, sorry, go ahead. So I was going to say, just in closing, because I, I did mention uh, Maria Reyes's Nobel Peace Prize and the work that you're doing through the Press Freedom Defense Fund in providing her with financial assistance. She's at war with this dictator and thug in uh, the Philippines, Duterte, right. and she exposed his absolutely outrageous human rights abuses and just wholesale murdering of people that 
uh, drug dealers, he said, but it could be anybody that just ended right. up dead. And, yeah, uh, thousands of people murdered. Exactly. I mean, by the government. And she's yeah. amazing. that Her speech was just extraordinary that she made recently. Yeah, yeah so, I've been very proud that the Press Freedom Defense Fund, as you said, we have uh, helped pay her legal bills since 2017 uh, when the cases against her by Duterte started. And I'm very proud to have uh, supported her. She is one of the most courageous people I've ever met. Um, and she's also... In addition to the drug war, she found that Duterte began to weaponize Facebook in the right. Philippines against her. And so she is also crusading to try to force social media companies to um, find way, you know, to find ways for Facebook and other companies to stop uh, disseminating so much disinformation and lies. Exactly. And she, yeah. she accuses, in effect, Zuckerberg of working hand in glove with Duterte right, to right, destroy right. her reputation and then have all these phony charges against her. And I believe they tried to stop her from going to Oslo to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, she but, did. She, they did let her go. She did go. Uh, it was last Friday, but she um, she has been her travel has been restricted and she still faces even after the Nobel Peace Prize. She still faces seven cases, legal or maybe eight cases in um, in the Philippines. Hmm. And she still faces the possibility of uh, long jail sentence. Well, congratulations for the work you're doing in, in defending Maria Reza, and thank you so much for joining us here today, James Risen. Thank you. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with James Risen, the national security correspondent at The Intercept and the former investigative journalist with The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestseller, State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. In 2006, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his stories about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA. And in 2007, he was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he's currently director of the Press Freedom Defense Fund, which has provided financial assistance for this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Maria Reza's legal defense in the Philippines. And his latest article, The Intercept, is if this can happen to Maria, then this can happen to you. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Big Oil's secret strategy to deal with climate change moving from climate denial to climate delay. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, closer. Let me whisper in your ear. Say the word you long to hear. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Naomi Oreskes, who's a professor of history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She served as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. And her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, the Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, Why Trust Science, and Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean. And she has an article at Common Dreams, Big Oil's Secret Strategy to Keep Winning. Welcome to Background Briefing, Naomi Oreskes. Thank you, Ian. Nice to be back with you. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Naomi. And your article at Common Dreams points out that climate delay is the new strategy to replace climate denial by the oil companies. And they recently, of course, the CEOs testified and they denied that they had anything to do with the delaying and obstructing science, the science about the global warming. But at this point, it's a real problem and it's something of a dilemma for Joe Biden, isn't it? With inflation, what, at a 31-year high, he's trying to get the price of gas at the pump down at the same time, you know, essentially get rid of gasoline altogether and move as quickly as possible to an all-electric grid. So how do you think he's going to navigate this? Because at this point, he's asked the Federal Trade Commission to look into whether the oil companies are, in fact, engaged in illegal conduct. Well, I have no idea what the president is going to do right now, although I can imagine some of his advisors are going back and looking at the Carter administration, because certainly he's in a very difficult situation. And we know that there has always been manipulation of prices in the energy industry. And we know that high gas prices can bring down a presidency. So he is facing a very serious issue at the very moment when we cannot afford to delay any longer on climate action. I like to remind people that we have known that climate change was real since 1988, when James Hansen first testified in the U.S. Congress that man-made climate change was underway. And for more than 30 years now, the fossil fuel industry has systematically worked to delay meaningful action. And we are now at a crisis point where not just a presidency is at stake, but our future is at stake, because we are just about out of time to do anything meaningful to stop the worst effects. And that's why this is such an urgent moment and why I felt motivated with Jeff Nesbitt to write a piece that really just didn't pull any more punches, that really laid out clearly the long history of disinformation by this industry with a kind of reckless disregard to the consequences to you and me and everyone else. So, but when you talk about Jimmy Carter's presidency being short-lived because of inflation and an oil crisis, and of course, we all recall here in California, you had to buy gas on, depending on the, on whether your license plate had an odd or an even number, and people were lining up for gas and people were weeping. And then years later, of course, George W. Bush said that we're addicted to oil. Well... We are. It's pathetic. I mean, weeping over and not being able to buy gasoline, I thought was was the most powerful reminder of that. But yet, here you have George W. Bush from the oil patch of Texas saying we're addicted to oil, but it hasn't really changed, has it? No, that's right. And part of the reason it hasn't changed is because the industry has done everything it possibly could to keep us addicted. You know, we think about drug pushers pushing drugs. I can remember the child being warned that pushers would give you free drugs in order to get you hooked. Uh, I don't know if they actually did that or not, but that's what we thought they did. And in a way, there's something sort of similar here where the industry pushes year after year, decade after decade for continued subsidies that keep fossil fuels cheap for the consumer, even though they're very expensive for the world. And so because we don't pay the true cost, we don't see how much fossil fuels really cost us when we fill up a tank of gas or pay our electricity bill. We keep operating as if they were cheap when in fact they're very, very expensive. 
Now, I don't want to be one of those academics who tells the president what to do. Uh, I know his job is very, very hard. But one thing I think he could do is this would be a perfect moment to say to the American people, now is the time to buy an electric car because electric cars have become really terrific. There are many models on the market now. The industry has really stepped up to the plate in terms of offering, I mean, for goodness sake, you can get an electric Ford 150 now. Uh, so this would be a great moment to really push the electric vehicle market to support Detroit and to support the American people and to point out as well that, yes, there is a little bit more of an upfront cost to an electric car. That's true for most uh, green energy, but you actually save money in the long run. It's not a message that people always are that happy to hear, but it's true. And, you know, when I talk about people often ask me, what do I do personally? And I always point out to people, well, when I put solar panels on my roof, I it, there was an upfront cost associated with it. But now I have almost zero electricity bill every year. And, of course, in the last, what, nine months of this year, the largest oil and gas companies have made a combined uh, $174 billion in profits, and that includes Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP, etc. So, well, and that's a great point, because another thing that he could do would be to impose a windfall profits tax on the industry and then use that money to give a rebate to the American people to cover any increase in the cost of oil and gas this year. So it's really important to remember the president and Congress have a lot of tools at their disposal. And there are lots and lots of ways to facilitate the energy transition while at the same time protecting consumers. And that's what I think the priority here needs to be. And again, I'm speaking with Naomi Oreskes, who's a professor of, history, of the history of science and affiliated professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. She served as a consultant to the United States Department Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the United States Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. And her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, why Trust Science, and Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean. And she has an article at Common Dreams, Big Oil's Secret Strategy to Keep Winning. There's also something else that the president could do. And of course, oil is about, what, $70, $80 a barrel now, went up around 100 gone down a bit. But the U.S. is was up until recently, I think it probably still is, the number one producer of oil and gas in the world. And because the oil in the United States was largely comes from fracking, which is an expensive process, the American oil companies prefer to sell it on the world market. But Biden could do something, from my understanding, is to basically force them to sell more on the domestic market and lower the price. And also you've got the factor of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's very much in in the pocket of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, etc., there's a good chance, and I think it's pretty likely, that he's helping Trump in his comeback by refusing to ramp up production in Saudi Arabia, which they normally do to accommodate American presidents, particularly at election time. He did the same for Trump. So there's a couple of factors there. Let's start with the export market. Do you think that is there something that could be done? Well, again, as I said before, the president and Congress have a lot of policy instruments at their disposal. There's often been a lot of resistance in Congress to the president trying to control domestic energy markets. 
um, for a lot of different reasons. And probably in the long run, it's probably not a great idea. But in the short run, as an emergency measure, absolutely, he certainly could do that. Uh, the Saudis, again, I'm not an expert on the Saudis, but we certainly have seen over the decades that uh, often the Saudis have increased oil exports to help the United States by keeping the price of oil down. And the fact that they're not doing that now um, is obviously political. So this all gets back to the central question of political power. We have plenty of energy. The United States has the capacity to meet most of its energy needs with renewable energy, with upgrades to our transmission lines. We know what we need to do. The science is very, very clear. The technology exists, but what stands in the way is the political and economic power of entrenched interests of whom the fossil fuel industry is the most important of those entrenched in interests. And that's what we really have to discuss. And until we can really get that front and center and figure out a way to break the political lock that these people have on our lives, you know, I think we will be continuing to have this conversation over and over and over again. Well, I think we need to know that, don't we? What, the extent to which this is a political act on the part of big oil. If you go back to uh, Jimmy Carter and the inflation that brought him down as a one-term president and the fear that the same could happen with Joe Biden, he's not getting a lot of help from his own um, senators like Manchin and Sinema and some of the, a handful in the House. I mean, is there a pattern here that if you take on big oil, and Biden has, and he's obviously got an ambitious agenda in terms of trying to electrify the grid and, and get these stimulus packages to invest in electric cars that you mentioned, which you know the market seems to be responding to. I'm just curious to know whether there you could is there some investigative journalism going on here that would indicate that <laughs> your article mentions Ida Tarbell and how. She brought down Standard Oil, but of course the irony was that the Rockefellers ended up making more money out of being broken up than they would have had they maintained this the consolidated control. So give me a sense of whether you think there is some investigative journalism here required if we are to see a repeat of what happened to Jimmy Carter. Well, I definitely think there's some investigations that are needed both in terms of journalists and also in terms of the federal regulatory agencies. I mean, many of our regulatory agencies have been weakened, uh, loath to really take on tough questions. Uh, some of them are clearly captured. So we also need to find ways to re-empower our regulatory structures. Um, that's not going to happen overnight, though, and that's part of the difficulty is that we're stuck in this very difficult spot. But I think that anyone who does have information on this needs to talk to journalists I mean, certainly what's going on right now smells pretty fishy, right? All of a sudden, the price of oil and gas is going up again, and all of a sudden, we're having these, you know, threats of shortages uh, right at the moment when it seemed like the world was really prepared to do something about climate change. And we've seen that before, of course. This isn't the first time that just when it seemed that we were about to get action on climate change, something happened to give people cold feet. Um, and then, you know, the whole issue of Joe Manchin is such a difficult one. I understand that he represents West Virginia, uh, and I understand that he wants to be reelected in West Virginia, but he also has a massive conflict of interest because of his relationships with the coal industry. And, you know, there's been a reluctance to call that out. I mean, some journalists have. Um, but, you know, the Democratic Party needs to find a way to clean up its act because it isn't just Joe Manchin. I mean, for 20 years, there were many Democrats in Congress who were very reluctant to have meaningful action on climate change because they had oil, gas, or coal interests in their state. 
Uh, we've seen that from Colorado. You know, we've seen it in the past from other states as well. So, you know, this is a tough time. And it's one of those moments when people really have to stand up and be counted. And uh, that's what I hope will happen. And that's and that's what I hope our article will help with, to remind people that the fossil fuel industry is not the friend of the American people. Uh, we saw in the hearings a couple of weeks ago, the fossil fuel industry tried to present themselves in a framework that my research associate, Jeffrey Supran, and I have called the fossil fuel savior, that they're just a great set of companies giving us the energy we need, fighting energy poverty, uh, working on innovative technologies like algae biofuel. But if you actually look at what they are doing, all of their actions are engaged in preventing meaningful action on climate change and keeping us dependent on fossil fuels. And not just this year, but for the foreseeable future. All of the companies who testified in Congress, with the sole exception of Shell, said that they intend to continue to explore for more oil and gas, to develop more oil and gas fields. They are all involved in the development of more fossil fuel infrastructure. And this means being committed not to just fossil fuels for a few more years while we transition into renewable energy, but for the next 30, 50, even 75 years, it means blocking the transition. And this is really the essential piece that I think a lot of people don't quite understand. The fossil fuel industry is not working in collaboration with Congress to figure out how we transition to renewable energy. They're working to block that transition. And as your article points out, climate delay is the new climate denial. But the race then surely is between the awakening of the of the people in this country about the consequences of global warming, which are pretty manifest, and we've just seen this in the last few days in the Midwest, and particularly in Kentucky, where uh, you know the worst tornado in history right. has ripped through the Midwest, and it's still happening. So, you know, you've got meanwhile you've got these record profits from the oil, oil companies, 170. Four billion in the last nine months. They're doing eight billion dollars worth of stock buybacks. So those are the realities. So do you think at some point or other, uh, citizens and affected companies like insurance companies can can be a counter lobby to this mendacity of the oil companies pretending to care about global warming and renaming methane as a natural gas as though somehow it's nature friendly. Yeah. Um, Right. So, well, lots of things are natural. You know, arsenic is natural. Uh, oil and gas are natural. So the fact that something is natural is not necessarily good. There are good things in nature and there are bad things in nature. Uh, but I think your point is the, is the crucial one, that there are many people, organizations and industries in this country who could really form an effective coalition uh, to change the political dynamics. And frankly, they haven't really stepped up to the plate. And the insurance industry is an obvious one. People have been talking about insurance and reinsurance for more than a decade now. The insurance company obviously knows what's going on. They are paying the price of all of this additional damage. Mostly they pass that price on to the consumer, but the reinsurance industry is very, very well aware of this. Why they won't speak up more in public, I don't know. Uh, maybe you can get someone from the reinsurance industry to come on board. Uh, we're starting to see the financial sector stepping up to the plate more, but certainly banks, uh, finance, there's a huge community in the private sector that has a strong interest in fixing this problem. Uh, but, you know, we don't hear from them 
or I shouldn't say we, Congress doesn't hear from them nearly as much as it hears from the fossil fuel industry and its allies. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island one time told me that every time there is any kind of climate legislation that gets starts to get serious in the Hill, the halls of Congress are filled with the fossil fuel industry lobbyists, but they're not filled with anyone, nobody from Microsoft or Apple or, um, you know, I don't know, even Ford Motor Company, they're not there creating a counter narrative about how fixing the climate crisis can be good for the American economy, good for American jobs. And so, you know, we really, if I could do anything in the world, ask business leaders to step up to the plate and say the fossil fuel industry does not represent the interests of, the, of American business. They represent the interest of the fossil fuel industry. And it's not just gas and oil, it's plastics. And look what's happening with plastics. A big chunk of the middle of the Pacific is just a vast garbage dump of plastic. It's it's manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. So I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Naomi Oreskes, who's a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She served as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. Her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, Why Trust Science, and Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean. And she has an article at Common Dreams, Big Oil's Secret Strategy to Keep Winning. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into next week's elections for president in Chile, where the frontrunner has been revealed as the son of a Nazi who at the end of World War II escaped to Chile via the Vatican's rat line. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jennifer Pribble, who is a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond. She's the author of Welfare and Party Politics in Latin America, and is currently researching the implementation of social welfare policies in Peru and Chile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Pribble. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the ghosts of uh, Pinochet are haunting the presidential elections, which are uh, scheduled for next weekend in Chile. And the front runner, at least in the first poll, turns out to be the son of a Nazi. And his brother, of course, was the finance minister for Pinochet. So how much is this new revelation from the Associated Press about Jose Antonio Cast's father affecting the polling at the moment, uh, one week to go before the election? Well, I think that the news perhaps was less surprising in Chilean circles. There had been uh, 
documents circulating showing that Michael Cast was a member of the Nazi party. Jose Antonio Cast has argued that, in fact, he was forced. But we know now with the AP reporting that membership in the Nazi party was not forced. Conscription was a reality, but not membership in the party. So I think where it's reverberating in the political arena is um, evidence that he has downplayed this or lied about this. And it fits into uh, Gabriel Boric's framing of this second round contest as a a fight between democracy and fascism. So I think this story really positions cast on that authoritarian side of the spectrum very clearly and perhaps gives Boric a bit of an advantage as he tries to convince voters to turn out for him. And his opponent, who of course is being labeled as a socialist, I guess to bring back memories of Allende, how's he doing? So Cast has done his best to paint Boric as dangerous, as a puppet of the Communist Party. He is in a coalition that includes the Communist Party, but Boric himself is not a communist. He, the program is very much a standard social democratic program uh, with appeals to increase the distributive power of the state, increase the regulatory power of the state, but absolutely no calls for taking over the economy or state ownership of the economy. In the first round, Boric had a hard time selling his program. Cass very effectively moved the focus to issues of order and public security. He appealed to anxiety among Chileans coming through the COVID pandemic in a difficult economic situation and after two years of a lot of turmoil. And Boric had a hard time bringing that attention back to issues of social services and redistribution. I think in the second round, he has done a more effective job at talking to Chileans about why increasing the size of the welfare state or responding to these pent-up distributive demands is actually the best way to arrive at order and security. That caste's vision of order and security is, in fact, quite authoritarian in its nature. So... Did the father then, Michael Cast, who served in Italy at the end of the war, he served in Crimea prior to that, after Stalingrad, of course, he then had ended up serving with the German army, the Wehrmacht in uh, um, Italy. And then he apparently obtained a false ID as a member of the International Committee on the Red Cross and escaped Allied forces who were looking for him, I guess, and... Was he helped by the so-called Vatican rat line that got so many of these former Nazi officers, many of whom were war criminals, into Argentina and Chile? The journalists who worked on the AP story asserted that that was the case. I think in terms of the documentation to back that up, uh, it's not altogether clear, but what is clear is that he was not granted citizenship in Chile until the mid-1990s. Uh, and so at least there's a lot of uncertainty or a lack of clarity about how he made that trip, how he entered, uh, and what the paper said upon his entry. Well, isn't there a place on the border between Argentina and Chile that's a kind of an enclave for these former Nazis? That's where... Uh, Eric Priebke was exposed and he was behind the massacre of 240 Italian men and boys in Argentine caves in Rome. Uh, he was the head of the SS in uh, Rome towards the end of World War II. 
before the Allies took Rome. So yeah, there are several uh, high-profile cases in Argentina, in particular, of Nazis who were who were discovered, uh, and indeed in the south of the country. In the case of Chile, there's a very well-known colony, Colonia Dignidad, uh, in the south of Chile, uh, made up of. of German immigrants, and there were well-known abuses inside of that community of, of all sorts that were exposed in recent years. And again, I'm speaking with Jennifer Pribble, who is a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond, and she's the author of Welfare and Party Politics in Latin America and is currently researching the implementation of social welfare policies in Peru and Chile. So the sins of the father's aren't necessarily visited upon the son, but one of the sons, of course, was the finance minister for Pinochet, and the town where they come from, the Cast family, and of course, Jose Antonio Cast is running for president, that town, I believe, had the highest number of political prisoners murdered by the Pinochet regime. Is that right? As a share of the population, that's correct. And there's a memorial in the town, which is I've only seen pictures of, but it seems pretty powerful. Absolutely, yes. And I think what's clear is that this is a family that had multiple ties to the dictatorship, and Jose Antonio Cast himself has been unapologetic in defending the dictatorship. Uh, and so he supported in the 1988 plebiscite, which was a plebiscite between continuing with Pinochet or transitioning to democracy, he supported continuing with Pinochet. In the recent efforts to rewrite Pinochet's constitution, he opposed those efforts despite 78.3% of Chileans voting in favor of rewriting that constitution. So he has time and again defended the dictatorship and allied himself with at least the economic model, and to a certain extent, the social and, and political views of that regime as well. So what kind of statistics or polling is there, Jennifer, in terms of the numbers of supporters for Pinochet amongst the 19 million people in uh, Chile? You know, uh, what we know is that coming out of the transition to democracy, the Democracy, dictatorship, cleavage, or dimension of competition was the primary dimension of competition in Chile. The parties organized along that, so the center-right parties, one of which the UDI, was a came directly out of members of the dictatorship. They were seen as defenders of the dictatorship, and the center-left coalition of parties who had fought for the transition were seen as pro-democracy. And the center-left parties did very well. They ruled for four successive periods of government competing on that dimension. But with time, competition shifted a bit to a more traditional left-right state market dimension of competition. And so I don't think that there's been a lot of polling about support for Pinochet today. We know that when he left office, he had upwards of 40% popular uh, support if we look at the results of the 1988 plebiscite. Today, I think what Cast is appealing to with his calls for order and sort of romanticizing the dictatorship is he's appealing to citizens who have tired of 
the street protests, which has been very regular since 2019. And even before 2019, we saw regular, we saw a steady increase in steep street protests. And I think he's also appealing to economic anxieties that coming out of COVID, Chile has seen declining growth, increasing poverty. They have inflation rates that Chileans are not familiar with. It's It hasn't been a reality in since uh, the, the early 1980s. So I think he's sort of appealing to Pinochet, but putting on top of that appeal some things that assume Chileans have forgotten the brutality of the dictatorship. Now, I think in the second round, Boric has tried to remind Chileans of that, and we can see that he's currently leading in the polls. So I think that that appeal to uh, the need to defend democracy and the dangers of someone who would defend and support uh, an individual who disappeared and killed and exiled thousands of Chileans is is starting to take hold. And Cass has uh, visited Washington, right? He he was hosted by Senator Marco Rubio. I don't know what kind of support he's getting here from the United States and what kind of financial support he's getting, but he's identified himself with anti-immigrant fervor. I don't know how much there is in Chile, but a lot of uh, Haitian immigrants who were in Chile and Brazil and Argentina, they have been driven north to the border here in Texas. So they were under the bridge and they were it was just a horrible humanitarian disaster. And of course, the United States deported these poor people back to, to Haiti, where they were destitute in a broken country. So give us a sense of what's going on in terms of that issue, uh, which seems to be heavily identified with caste. Yeah. So in addition to pushing the public security law and order, he has really tried to bring immigration front and center, and he's done it quite successfully. Chile has seen immigration triple since 2014. So it really has seen a rapid increase in the size of the foreign-born population. And you are correct that a large group of those are Haitians, but Venezuelans driven out by the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela make up another large group of immigrants. Uh, and, and caste has tried to politicize this, very similar in, in rhetoric to the ways that, of course, Donald Trump did it. He's talked about closing borders, building trenches along the border. He's talked about threats to Chilean identity. And so again, I think in, in a period of significant social and economic change in Chile, we cannot forget that the 2019 mass protests were a turning point for that country. Millions took to the streets to decry inequality, a broken political system, and it prompted a call for a new constitution, which is now underway. We've seen massive feminist mobilization, uh, demands for greater um, environmental protection. So Chile's seen really significant social and political change. And there's, of course, a sector of the population that feels uncomfortable with that. And caste in bringing immigration into it is in some ways following a very similar playbook to what we saw with Donald Trump. Well, I guess the good news is that he's he's behind in the poll, so we'll we'll hold a, <laughs> hold yeah. our breath until next weekend. I thank you, Jennifer, for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Pribble, who's a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond. She's the author of Welfare and Party Politics in Latin America and is currently researching the implementation of social welfare policies in Peru and Chile. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.